Children, you're dismissed. We're going to follow Miss Flo upstairs for Children's Church. You know, we was watching this. Uh, you can go ahead and turn it off. We was watching this um, when she was singing that Let It Rain, and hopefully everybody had their eyes closed, but I'm rebellious, so I opened mine. Um, and I was watching as we was just singing, and I was just praying, and I was watching all of these raindrops hit the water. And this thought just came in my mind, and it was, what if every single one of those raindrops hitting that water. I just, I know this is silly, but just bear with me. The water I pictured as the church, uh, the group of believers worldwide, not this church or any particular church. I just pictured those raindrops, every single raindrop being a new soul added to the kingdom of God. And I just was asking myself, what's preventing us from being such a body of Christ, such a movement of believers that we don't have that many and that frequent of conversions. I mean, we're off to a great start. I don't want to discredit anything God's already done. But what if that was just the tip of the iceberg? What would we have to do to become a group of believers that could impact the world and have so many people coming to Christ? I mean, you've heard of some of the great revivals where you know, hundreds and thousands of people are saved. What would prevent us from becoming something like that? I think the answer is simple. It's exactly what we've been going over in this series. Are we really living a life that testifies to the faith that we say that we hold? Are we fully surrendered? Are we fully devoted? Are we really invested? Because I think if we can really get invested 100%, nothing held back, but we give God every part of ourselves. I think that if we could really get to that place, then I think that we could be just like this picture and we could be a church that was seeing people added to the kingdom daily as God gives the increase. That's what they seen in the early church in Acts. God gave, increased the church daily. I think we could be like that. We could see people coming to the Lord daily. We could see people coming to the Lord weekly. But really and truthfully, we have to deal with ourselves first. I want to deal with out there. I want to be in outreach. You guys know my heart's for evangelism. But in order to be effective out there, we have to do some work in here. So that's what we're focused on this week. Remember, we've been going over 1 Timothy 1.19. And we've titled this series, Don't Be a Shipwreck. Um, we're going to be in Colossians 3 today, but we're going to do a little bit of recap. 1 Timothy 1.19, you guys have probably heard this so much you're sick of it. It says, holding to faith and a good conscience. And then it says, by rejecting this, many have made a shipwreck of their faith. And so we started out and we asked, what is this? What is the antecedent of this? What is the object that the pronoun this is referring to? Because that really has to be something we figure out if we're going to understand how to not make our faith a shipwreck, right? If it says, if you reject this, you're going to be a shipwreck, then you need to know what this is. And so we looked back and we said, well, obviously it must be the phrase that which preceded the statement this. And so it must be faith in a good conscience. And so we're like, well, first of all, what is faith? And just using the Scripture to interpret Scripture, we just went back up a few verses, and verse 15 says, this saying is acceptable or trustworthy and worthy of all acceptance, that Jesus Christ came in the world to save sinners. And then he goes on to say, of whom I am chief. But it says Jesus Christ came in the world to save sinners. And we're like, well, that's simple. That's the foundation of our faith. That's the basis that we build everything on. If Jesus Christ, A, didn't come into the world, then we have no reason to worship Him. 
And B, if He didn't come in the world to save sinners, then we have no hope of making it into heaven. So that has to be the acceptant, acceptable saying. That has to be something that we latch on to. Otherwise, we have no faith. But the part that the series is really honed in on is what is meant by a good conscience. Right? That's what we said we were going to focus on. Because we know that we have faith, but what is meant by a good conscience? And we said, we're not really talking about Jiminy Cricket from Pinocchio. We're talking about the affirmation and the spiritual assurance that our faith is true and that our faith is actually applicable and lived out in our lives. Right? And so we said, how do we do that? What does the Scripture actually say is required of Christianity? And we all hate that word, don't we? We hate the word requirement. If somebody says you can have this, but you got to do this first, prerequisite, this is required. You know, you're filling out a job application and it says this much experience is required. And you're like, well, I'm like three months shy of that. No, 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 this much is required. This has to be met. We hate that word. We absolutely hate it. At least I hate it. I hate when something is required of me. It's okay when something is desired of me because it doesn't put the hard line in the dirt saying you have to have this. So we wanted to look at what really is required of Christianity because we know that faith alone isn't enough. It's not enough when you take belief alone. And James tells us that. We looked at that passage from James and he says, the devils believe and they tremble. They don't just believe that Jesus came in the flesh. They don't just believe that Jesus died. They don't just believe that Jesus ascended and is seated at the right hand of God. They're also scared of Him. They have the fear of God also, but they're still not redeemed. Mm -hmm. It's not enough that you have faith as in a belief system. You have to have the works too because James goes on to say, if you have faith without works, it's useless. It's dead being alone. He says, if you show me your faith without works... I'll show you my faith by my works because I know good and well you can't show me your faith without works because faith without works is dead. It doesn't exist. It's a facade. It's nominal Christianity. It's Christianity in name only. It's saying that we believe and we say with our mouth that we believe, but our life is just like the world. See, when Jesus touches you, He comes in and He makes you a new creature, a new creation. And if you're made a new creation, then the new creation should not be a duplicate clone of the previous creation. It should be something different because this isn't made by a sin-sick, disease-ridden world. This is made by the hand of God. It's a spiritual transformation. You should be made with a new heart and a new flesh, with a new mind, new desires. It shouldn't be the same as before. There has to be something different. Otherwise, your conversion may not have been a conversion. It may have been a mental ascent. But in evangelism training, what have we been talking about? That there's one thing that's saving faith. Saving faith is not temporal faith. It's not hoping and believing in a set goal like God help me have a safe trip. And then once you've had a safe trip, the faith is expired because the deadline that you had on the faith is met. Or God, please bring me through and meet my finances for this month. That's a temporal faith. It's a faith placed in an external object that expires once the deadline is met. It's not a mental ascent that you know all the scriptures, that you can recite them, that you can quote them. That's great. But that's not saving faith. Saving faith is an entire and complete surrender into God Almighty, knowing that you have no hope outside of Jesus Christ. That's saving faith. That you trust Him to be your all in all, your everything, and you allow Him to do what He will in you. Remember Romans 10, 9 and 10, it says that we confess that He is Lord. 
we confess that He is Lord. And the follow-up is if you're confessing that He is Lord and you're believing in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, then your life should be a reflection that Jesus is your Lord. If He is your King, your Lord, your Master, then you're going to do what He says and you're going to follow His leading and His guidance. Right? So that's the whole purpose of this series is having a good conscience. And so we came up with some words and we took the parable of the sower and we looked at some natural ways to be a shipwreck and we kind of lined them up side by side. And one of the things we went over was we came up with the word stewardship. And remember, all these words are ending in ship to make them easier to remember. How not be a shipwreck? Well, pay attention to this ship. (laughs) I thought it was clever, but I may just be me alone. So the parable that we took, the parable of the sower, we know that there's four types of ground, right? There's the ground that's hard. It's the road. It's been trodden on. The seed gets thrown on it and never penetrates the ground. And we said that that's like the seed is good, the seed is the Word of God, the sower is the Son of Man, the sower's fine, but the problem is with the ground. And the ground is trodden on, it's become so hard that the seed, the Word of God, never gets invested. It never really gets sown into the ground, it just sits there on the top, it's a surface level. And the reason we associated that with stewardship is because a steward is someone that is a manager and overseer of someone else's possessions. And everything that you have, your money, your time, your abilities, your sphere of influence, everything that you possess really belongs to God. You just have the potential to oversee it. He's made you manager of that. You are a a steward of the things that belong to God. And if you don't invest those things in a godly manner or in a way that pleases God, then you are not really allowing the seed of the Word of God to become invested in your life. So you have made your heart, which is the ground, as the seed of the ground of the road, the ground on the wayside. The seed of the Word of God hits your heart and it just lays there. And the birds and the devil and all of that stuff can just pull that seed right off of your heart because you've never allowed it to be softened. You've never allowed the seed to become invested in your life because you've never invested the things that God has given to you. And we said that's like a failure. That's like a shipwreck that's caused by failure, by the design, by the equipment, by the captain making a wrong turn. That's a design. The equipment's fine. Everything that God's given to you is perfect and in order because He is perfect and in order. But the problem is what you do with the things that He's given to you. Faith and I, we talk to a lot of people about budgeting. And this isn't something that I get into, especially with the church, but we have friends that see how we budget and they ask for advice sometimes. And one of the things that we usually say is, well, how much do you eat out? Because if you're saying, well, I don't have enough to make my to pay my bills, the very first thing we say is, how much do you eat out? Because if you're investing, say, $10 a day at McDonald's and you do that seven days a week, that's $70 a week. That's $280 in a four-week month that's going to McDonald's. That's scary. That's a scary amount. And it starts with $5 a day, $10 a day. I joke with Faith sometimes because she loves pumpkin spice lattes. And she keeps telling me it's just for a season. It's just for a season. But that's $5 a day. She doesn't get one seven days a week. But that's $5 a day. I felt the need to clarify that. (laughs) But that's 35. If she got one every day, that's $35 a week, which would be $145 a month on a coffee. That's crazy. But we do that because we see the little incremental things like, oh, it's just five bucks. It's just five bucks. I'm not going back into stewardship. I'm just telling you that how we invest the things that God has given us is a reflection of where our heart's at. Jesus says it this way, where your treasure's at, there's where your heart's at. And so where we put our money 
where we put our time, where we put our energy, where we put our abilities, where we put our conversation, what takes up most of our conversation, the friends that we surround ourselves with, that will tell us a direct reflection of where our heart's actually at. How close to God we actually are can be easily perceived by the five C's. And that's the checkbook, conversation, capabilities, your uh, contacts or your sphere of influence, and I forget what the... Calendar time. That's right. Thank you, Faith. And the next one, last week, this is what we talked about. We talked about the navigational error that a ship becomes wrecked because it has its longitude or its latitude off. And we said this is relationship. And it's two parts, horizontal and vertical. Our fellowship, our relationship with one another, and our relationship with God in His Lordship. And if we've got either one of those off, we're like the seed that has rocky ground. We're invested, but we don't really have root. We're trying to get invested, but there's some rocks, some things in our path that are preventing us. They're skewing our perception of God. They're preventing and hindering our relationship with one another. And so, yeah, we'll bring up like a plant and it's beautiful, but when persecution comes or when the sun shines down on the plant, withers and it dies. And the reason that it withers and it dies is because, number one, you don't have a proper relationship with God as His Lordship. So you can't really turn to Him and receive because you haven't really ironed that relationship out. And number two, you can't can't turn to your fellow body of Christ and believers because you've never really established that relationship and so you have no way to really draw uh, sustenance from them. You have no way to really draw from them or lean on them. It's like a plant without root. When we were digging this flower bed up, those tap roots, what they're called, they're like five miles long and they like break your back to get a plant up out of the ground. Those things, the plant may be three foot tall, but that tap root may be ten foot long. And it just goes down and it goes to the side. And it's stretched out across the ground. So that way, if this part of the ground is wet and all of this is dry, it's still going to draw moisture and keep the plant alive. The thing about being ingrained and rooted in the body of Christ is it doesn't matter if 50% of the body is going through a hard time because you're so rooted to the body as a whole that if this part's going through a hard time, you can still draw sustenance and moisture and life from this part of the body. That's necessary. It's necessary to be attached to one another. And we finish that message by saying the way that you treat one another is a direct reflection of how close to God you are. You can tell the measure of a man or a woman not by how they treat their superiors, not by how they treat people they deem their equals, but the way that they treat somebody that they deem as less than themselves, that's how you tell how much integrity or honor a man or a woman has. If they think that somebody is not worth their time and they just brush the cold shoulder to them, you can tell a lot about their integrity by that right there. Because it doesn't matter if the President of the United States, regardless of your political opinion, comes here and everybody smoozes up to them. It doesn't matter. That doesn't show their integrity. It just shows their ambition. But if somebody comes and they're homeless and they haven't had a shower in four or five weeks and they haven't eaten and there's nothing that they can do for you and you give them the cold shoulder or you take them in and you talk to them and have a conversation conversation with them like they're the anybody else that shows your integrity that shows your honor that shows your godliness so anyway those that's the navigational error longitude and latitude and today is going to be a playoff of one of those it's going to be a playoff of his lordship another way that a ship a common cause of shipwreck in the natural is a ship running aground at night 
you know, that's why we have those beautiful towers that Thomas Kincaid paints all these lovely paintings of that are they're a lighthouse on the coast with the light shining in the wavy and dark cloudy stormy sea but you see the light shining through that the thing about that is you can see the light no matter how thick the darkness is and what we're going to be talking about today is worship and we're going to be talking about worship and the reason that I use that natural peril, parallel for worship is because we have this saying and Faith and I will tell each other when we're having a bad day we always say this saying to each other if it's a bad week or if it's a bad month or whatever we say this saying never forget in the darkness what God showed you in the light never forget that because sometimes you're ha when everything's good God will tell you something and then when the test comes when the trial comes God will expect you to hold on what He showed you in the light so when you're going through the hard times, you can look back to the times when you had the light and you can hold on to something. The thing about a lighthouse is the storm and the darkness don't dictate the light's direction. It's stormy, it's cloudy, you're coming up, the ship's coming up to the coast, that lighthouse spinning around with that light, you can still see the light regardless of the darkness. The thing about worship is you can worship regardless of your life circumstance. And there will always be. You may have to press through. You may have to press through. You may have to worship a different and sing a different song. You may not be able to sing, Oh, Happy Day, but you can sing It's Well With My Soul. You may not be able to sing the Hallelujah Chorus, but you can mourn. And that's what I want to talk about is there's many facets of worship, but no matter what your season of life is, there's always a place for worship. It may just change how you go about it. You may not be doing jumping jacks and clapping, and sing at the top of your lungs. You may be on your knees crying in the floor when nobody's around. But there's always a place for worship. There's always a time. There's always a way. So regardless of your circumstances, we're going to get into worship. And we're going to start with Colossians 3. We're going to talk about three aspects of worship. We're going to read this passage starting in verse 12 and work our way down. Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. Put on them as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord also has forgiven you, so also must forgive. And above all else, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful." Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the God the Father through Him. So I want to talk to you about three aspects of worship. Because so often when we think about worship, we think about the singing. We think about the song, we think about hymns, or maybe you think contemporary, or maybe you think about happy songs, or maybe you think about sad songs. But that's not worship. That's a vehicle through which worship can be conveyed to God, but that is not worship. That is singing. Worship is not confined to singing. Do not picture worship and then an equal sign singing or dancing. That's not what worship is. Worship is preoccupation with God, the person God. That's worship. See, it's like this. Prayer is preoccupation with a need or a desire or a focus. Praise 
is preoccupation with a blessing, something that God has done, is doing, or will do. But worship is preoccupation with who God is. You don't worship God because you got a check in the mail for $200 that you weren't expecting. You don't worship God because all of a sudden you've seen five people get saved. Those are glorious truths and you praise God for that. You worship God because He is God regardless of what's going on in your life. You may praise God and that praise feed over into worship and like, God, five people got saved and I know that they got saved because you are love and you are mercy and you are compassion and you are a shepherd and you are a good, good father. So you may have praise thanking Him for the five people that got saved and then that bleed over into the worship. But praise and worship are not the same thing. So often we use those as synonyms and they are not. They are different. Praise is about what God has done or He is doing or He will do and worship is all about who He is. You worship Him simply because He is God and you are not. You worship Him simply because He is holy and His name deserves your worship and your glory attributed to Him. That's the whole reason you and I were made. Everything that happens on this earth, everything that goes on, every word that you say, everything that you have should be fixated and fastened and filled and inhabited with the glory of God. We should dictate our conversations and our actions and everything attributing how does this glorify God? How does my actions bring glory to His name? It's not just the WWJD, what would Jesus do? Which is great. I'm not downplaying that even though it's kind of been made a cliche and people abuse that and take advantage of that and all that. But what I'm saying is instead of that it should be how do I bring glory to Him? How do I live my life in such a way that everything that I do brings honor to His name? That's the focus. That's the substance of worship. The substance of worship. And so three parts of worship. The first is your life should be worship. Not just your song, but your life should be worship. Everything about your life should be worship. What do I mean by that? Look at verse 12 through verse 15. He says, and I'm just going to go through here real quick. He says, put on compassionate hearts, put on kindness, put on humility, put on meekness, put on patience, bear with one another. If you have a complaint, forgive each other. Um, above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, which, for which reason you were called into one body, and be thankful. Verse 12 through 15 says all of that. And that's following up verses 1 through 11 talking about don't do this, don't do that, don't do this. See, Christianity, like we've been talking about so much, is about a life change. It's about not being the same thing or same person that you were before you got saved. It's about changing from a vile human being that seeks their self, being a hedonist or always seeking your own pleasure, and changing and to seek the glory of God. So now we're going from what we used to do, we're stopping that, but we don't just stop by not sinning anymore. Now we're looking at how do we live our life in such a way to glorify God. And that is what it's about. See, it doesn't matter how you sing if your life is a mess. It doesn't matter if you come in here and you sing louder than everybody else and you sound prettier than everybody else and you dance and do a little jig and you raise your hands and you say hallelujah 50 times. It doesn't matter. That's, that's face value. You're doing it in front of people. That's what Jesus says about the Pharisees. They pray so that they can be seen for praising. They pray so they can be seen for praying. Those things are good. But if your life is hell Monday through Saturday and you come here on Sunday and you worship better than everybody else, you're losing. If your life is heaven Monday through Saturday and you come in here and you're the quietest one and you just worship from the sincerity of your heart, you're ahead of everyone else. 
It's not about the dance. It's not about the raising the hands. It's not about the singing, although all those things are products of worship and vehicles to convey your worship. Worship is a matter of the person having their heart transformed and reflecting the work of God. Your life can be a testament. Oh, Philippians 1.20, and I'm going to quote this from the King James just because I like a word that they use here in the King James. According to my earnest expectation and my hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, so now also, Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by my life or by my death. See, the other versions say honored, that Christ shall be honored in my body. And it's the same thing, but the reason I chose the King James is because it says magnified. And magnification is like the height of honoring. It's still honoring them, but it's just like taking that honor to the nth degree. It's, yes, I'm honoring them, but I'm honoring them in the most powerful and full way that I can possibly bring them honor. And Paul says, whether it's by my life or even by my death, Christ will be magnified in my body. The whole point of this verse, the capsulation of this verse, is Paul's essentially saying, I don't care what happens to me. If I suffer, it brings Him glory. If I die, then I die and it brings Him glory. If I live, then I can continue to minister and live my life in a way that it reflects and admonishes Christ. He goes on to say, to live is Christ and to die is gain. What he's saying is, no matter what happens, my life is worship itself. My life is bringing Him glory. My life is lived in such a way that it reflects Jesus and shows that He is the God of my life. Essentially what he's saying is, I live my life with a good conscience. Right? That's the whole point. What is a good conscience? Paul's saying here, I live my life so that every second is Christ. I live my life so that every move I make is Christ. I live my life so that even if I die, I end my life and it's Christ. It's powerful. It's powerful. Alright. So the second part of this, the second part of worship, the first part is the life of worship. The second part is the act itself. The singing the praising. And I think it's interesting right here, verse 16. He says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. He says, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So here ends the debate forever. Hymns versus contemporary, singing only psalms, putting music to David's writings and Asaph's writings, or do we allow the red back? Do we have to stick with the red back or do we allow the contemporary versions? This verse right here should put an end to all that because he says psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. We should have all three. We shouldn't say we have to have this one only. Red back only or die. Blue back only or die, which nobody says blue back only. Most people that like the red back hate the blue back. <laughs> Or even the greenback. Let's go to the Methodist hymnal. Now I'm just saying, we shouldn't have these things becoming debates and consuming us. I heard a guy the other day preaching, and he was preaching about this very topic, and he was saying that modern music is man-centered. And he said, even if your lyrics are God-centered, the way that they do the music now is man-centered. And I'm like, you guys may have never seen this, oh brother, where art thou? But Pete, he says, that don't make no sense. <laughs> That's what, I, that's what I thought. That doesn't make any sense. You're saying that the music is man-centered. Okay. The words are saying, holy, holy, holy. And you're saying, no, you're too repetitious. And I'm like, somebody go tell the seraphim in heaven that they aren't allowed to be repetitious in singing. Because they circle His throne day and night. 
over and over again. Holy, holy, holy. That's all they say. Every time they get a glimpse of God and His glory and majesty, they say, holy, holy, holy. But now apparently, according to a lot of circles in Christianity today, we're not allowed to be repetitive in our singing. I'm like, I wish somebody would have told David that because he says, Lord, your mercy is new every morning like 50 times in half his songs. We need to get over these little tidbits of worship has to be this way or our singing has to be this way. We need to sing this song and not this song. We need to do this and not this. And I'm not saying you can't have recommendations and I'm not saying that you can't have preferences. Faith sang a hymn this morning because Dewey has a hymnal preference. So does Pat. That's okay. You can have preferences. But if your preference becomes a bar to prevent you from His presence, you've lost. If you can't stand beside somebody of another generation and sing your songs and then their songs and worship them the same across the board, you've lost. Because you've lost the spirit of worship altogether. The spirit of worship is not conveyed in a song. The spirit of worship is conveyed in a unity of believers coming together and glorifying God together. That's worship. That's what the act of worship is supposed to be. Regardless of what song she chooses to play, she prays about this. She takes time for this. Regardless of what song the Spirit leads her to sing, regardless of her preference, regardless of your preference, regardless of my preference, God, you don't want to hear me sing, regardless of all of that, we should be able to come together. I went to the district meeting a couple weeks back in my favorite part of the district meeting. We were a bunch of pastors there. No worship leaders that I could tell, maybe one or two. And we sang, How Great Thou Art, with no accompanying music, together in unison. And 95% couldn't sing. And if I can tell you that they can't sing, they really couldn't sing. But man, it was beautiful. Because everybody there just loved Jesus. And we just sang to God together. And we sang a hymn because everybody knows that hymn. Or at least part of it. And it was beautiful. Because it wasn't about the song choice. It wasn't about the talent. It wasn't about you have this this way and drums or no drums or guitar, electric or acoustic. It wasn't about any of that. It was simply about God. And that's what worship needs to be. An occupation and a fixation upon God. Right? That's the act of worship. The third part of worship is a life of surrender. And it's similar to the first part. But what I mean by a life of surrender is Paul... He has this thorn that's given to him by God. And I'll just read this real quick. He says, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said, My grace is sufficient for you, and my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more glory of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I just thought to myself, this is completely backwards from our day. We had a conversation with somebody today. They had visited a church. And the church that they had visited to had a guest speaker. And the person that introduced the guest speaker got up and read a list of all this guy's uh, accomplishments, all the places he had served, his whole tenure, and took like five or ten minutes to just read about this guy. 
that was getting up to preach about Jesus. And then the guy got up to preach, but then he did the same thing and read the list of accomplishments that his wife had accomplished. And so like 15, 20 minutes of the service went to just reading accolades for these people. And, you know, I love honoring people whom honor is due. There's a time and a place for that. But the thing is, what if that guy would have got up and instead of reading the list of accomplishments, he read his failures. He read his list of weaknesses because that's what Paul does. There's a couple times where people are questioning whether or not he's an apostle and he defends that. But he's, he even makes fun of himself. He's like, I speak as a man. I'm speaking foolishly. But the truth is, Paul takes the time to boast in his weaknesses. This is where I struggle. This is where I'm weak. To prevent me from getting conceited. So Paul was saying, I have the potential or I am dealing with pride. Because God has blessed me with all this. And it gets me thinking about myself. And I've listened to Francis Chan and he's done it a couple times. Have you ever just thought about those things that don't even make sense in your own life? Like, for example, most people have this need to be accepted. So there'll be a conversation going on, and I'll just use a random one. Um, a guy that goes here, he's not here this morning, Dave, he, he likes to forage, like acorns and stuff. He likes, I mean, he, he's a post-trip guy, so he likes to prepare, you know, and figure out other ways to get food other than just like the supermarket, which is cool, you know, to each their own. But if he was having a conversation with three other guys about foraging, you just walk up, and you just like put your input in because you have this human desire to be accepted. Like you know what you're talking about. And in theology, it's the same way. People will be talking about and using all these big fancy terms like the penal substitutionary atonement. And so you just get in this conversation. You just start throwing your words around. And half the time you may look your, make yourself look silly because you have no idea what you're talking about. But we have this human need to be accepted. So much that even like social media platforms, I, I don't really fool with it much anymore. But I used to have a Twitter and uh, I had a pretty decent sized following for a little while and then I got off and everybody stopped following me. Um, betrayers. <laughs> um, but no, there was a guy and he reached out to me. And you guys probably know who Max Licato is, right? So this guy, he had his name, his Twitter profile was Max Licato. His biography was Christian Writer, some of the books that he had published in Max Licato. And I didn't know about the little blue check marks beside their name, that it was a verified account or whatever. So this guy starts messaging me, follows me. I'm like, oh, cool, Max Licato's messaging me. Didn't think nothing about it. And then I realized that this guy was not Max Licato. And, you know, some other people have dealt with identity theft through Twitter and they've been lawsuits and all kinds of stuff. But why would somebody be so obsessed with someone's life that's not their own, that they'd be willing to make an entire profile saying that they were somebody else. But you know, really and truthfully, every single one of us do that every single day. Everybody can see what we want them to see, but they don't see who we really are. They see like 70% of us because the 30%, the things that go on at home, the struggles that we deal with, the pain, the hurt, like. You know, if we're really struggling with depression or if we're, you know, I've, I knew somebody that was struggling with a sickness and nobody knew that they were struggling with a sickness for the longest time because we just keep part of ourselves hidden from the world. We just, we just keep it back. Our pains, our hurts, our struggles. You know, I've known people that were in ministry that were doubting God and then they got up to a pretty high level in ministry and they ended up breaking and their faith kind of crumbled around them and then sin came out, you know, 
there's a lot of major ministers of the gospel that had been hiding an affair, and then they get up and they're so, they have this worldwide following, and then they crumble, and it's such a dishonor to the church and to Jesus because the whole time they were putting on a facade, and they couldn't just step out and say, "I'm human, and I'm struggling with this. I'm a human, and I'm dealing with this. I'm." But no, we want to put our list of accomplishments and the things that we think are acceptable in people's sight, and we want to list those out. The thing about worship, and I promise I'm tying it back around, the thing about worship is worship can't be that. It can't be I'm going to come and sing pretty, and then the other six days of the week I'm going to doubt God and curse God and hope to die. No, if that's the way you're feeling, then that needs to be the way that you're worshiping. You need to worship from a position of brokenness. You don't need to allow your position of brokenness to be held to the back and let it store up and pent up as some form of anger and pain until you get to the point to where you just don't even want anything to do with God and then you lose the facade too. Let's just put the facade to the side and let's worship God for how we're feeling when we're feeling it and know that He is God despite what we're going through. Let's don't put on a facade and pretend everything's okay just because we're here on Sunday and everything's supposed to be okay. No, this is the place where you're supposed to be honest. This is a place where if you're hurting, you can get help. This is the place where if you're dealing with something, it can be dealt with and put away and put to bed. And if anybody judges you, then they have to take it up, not only with God, but they're going to have to take it up with me because this is the last thing in the world that needs to be a place of judgment. We don't need to judge people's struggles. If they're coming to the point to where they're willing to open up and say, I'm struggling, then we need to deal with the struggle and know that they're trying, that they're pursuing after God. Because you don't know who that person could be. If you guys met me 10 years ago and you would have told me or even thought to yourself that this man would be a pastor of a church, you would have never believed it. Nobody would have believed it. Nobody. Not only was I an addict, but I was a dealer. I was a womanizer. I was violent. I was gang-affiliated. All of that stuff. But God moved on me and changed my life. And now I am where I am by His grace, by His work. But the truth of the matter is, is the one thing that I never did was I never hid it. When I came to the church, I was open and honest about who I was. And thank God that it was a church at first that wasn't judgmental. They took me in. They ministered to me. Later, they had a contest about how long I would last. That was another issue aside. But at first, they took me in. They welcomed me. And it changed my life. But I worshiped God where I was at. I repented and I came to God where I was at. We need to be honest about where we're at. Not pretend we are somebody or we are where we're not. Worship God where you're at. And then let God bring you to where He wants you to be. I heard a minister this past week and he was talking and he said, people say that they forget their sins. He said, no, we're human. We don't do that. God has the ability to choose not to remember and can't, therefore can forget. But we can't. We're going to have those memories. And people treat that as such a pain and such a disaster. But he came from it from a different perspective. He said, be thankful that you have those memories because those memories can be an initiation to true worship. You can look at that. And occasionally I'll have one pop up in my head, a memory of where I was at before I even got saved from like 15 years ago. And for so long it plagued me, but this man, this statement really did change my life. He said, I used that and I said, God, thank you. Because no one could have made that transformation, taken me from where I was at to where I am now. No one could have. But you did. 
you changed me. And so that's where I'm just going to, I'm not going to continue on. I'm just going to leave it there. Um, we'll skip that last section and just go right here. Exodus 33, 13. This is, this is the whole purpose. This is, this is it. This is, now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. If I have found favor in your sight, if I have been deemed acceptable, if I am pleasing in your sight, then show me your ways that I may know you so that I may find favor in your sight. If I already have favor, if I'm already pleasing, if I'm already doing it right, then show me your works and who you are so that I may do it even better. That's what our worship needs to be about. Yes, 15 years ago, I was a heathen. And heathen doesn't even sum it up. I was, like Paul, the chief of sinners. But God chose to have mercy on me, changed me, brought me to where He's at now. And now I can look at it and say, if I found favor in your sight, if I've done good coming from there to here, then show me who you are, show me the works that you've done, so that now I can be better in 15 years and I can look back 15 years from now and say, if I've done good this past 30, then show me who you are so that the next 30 I can do even better. It's all about saying, God, thank you for where you've brought me to, but don't stop. Don't stop. And the great thing about it is in Philippians, he promises, he says, he that began a good work in you will not cease to bring it to completion. He's going to finish it. If he started it, he's going to finish it. The thing that we have to do is choose to let him start it. And we can't do that if we have a facade up. We can't do that if we're pretending to be something that we're not. We have to give it all. And what better way to give it all than today? The Lord says that today is the day of salvation. And I know the one thing that I've been so happy with and we have a low number here today, but that's fine. But the one thing that I've been so happy with is not the fact that the church has grown, although it has grown numerically. I've watched, even in six months, I've watched the individual lives here and the depth of increase that's been brought in individuals. The people that were hungry and they've grown, the maturity and the faith coming from starting out here and just growing and just really getting invested and really getting committed even beyond what you were beforehand. And that's been the thing that's been so exciting. Yeah, we're growing numerically. Doesn't matter. It's a great, great witness. But if we grow to 10,000 people and everybody's just an inch deep and the spiritual maturity of an infant, then we've we've lost because any wind or wave of doctrine will sweep them away. But if we grow a little bit at a time and everybody is so strong and so mature in the faith that even if you take us out of the way, they could stand on their own. That's what we want. That's where it's at. So let's worship God for that. And we're going to proceed and do communion. Faith has something that she wants to share with you guys as we get ready for communion. Dewey, Michael, if you guys want to come up and help me with this. Here you go.